And depending on which politician is speaking, Australia's economy is strong or it's tanking. We've got the lowest ever interest rates and wages are barely moving. The government, of course, hopes people will spend the tax cuts it passed with ALP support in the first sitting week of this parliament. But even if they do, this will pretty much do nothing to help those on fixed incomes like Newstart. Emma Dawson is Executive Director of Per Capita. Before the election, Emma was advocating for reform around franking credits and negative gearing and to raise the rates. And um, before we rake over any election calls, Emma, um, can we get your view on where you think the economy is sitting right now? Yeah, uh, I don't think it's looking great, to be honest. Um, I think, you know, the, the government did go to the election saying everything's tickety-boo, we're going to be back. Well, apparently we, we did return to surplus next year. That was an interesting um, use of tens by the Prime Minister. Um, but actually all the indicators are pretty scary. The interest rates are at record lows. Um, wages aren't lifting and they haven't for five or six years and the underemployment rate is really quite high. Um, one thing about the employment, you know, the government says, well, there are more jobs in the economy than ever, but there are more people in Australia than ever. So that, that you know, blunt number doesn't actually mean much you've got to look at the unemployment rate and it hasn't shifted really it's sort of creeping between five and five point five percent now the the rba will say well five percent is pretty much where we think um has always said that's that's kind of a measure of full employment um although they have recently come out lucy ellis the deputy governor came out recently and said she thinks the unemployment rate needs to be closer to four before wages will start moving I personally don't even think that. I mean, that's not full employment. Um, that's the rate at which our, you know, monetary policy keeps employment so that there's a pool of unemployed workers that, you know, exert pressure on on wages. Um, but actually, five percent isn't what it used to be. You know, you, you, we live in a time where uh, you counted as employed if you've got one hour a week driving an Uber um, in a gig economy. So actually, five percent, even if you go by these measures of the, you know, non-accelerating inflationary rate of unemployment, which is a, you know, very technical term for the rate at which uh, the number of unemployed people keeps inflation under control. Um, and I've got issues with that to start with. But even if you if you, if you consider that should be 5%, 5% now is more like what 9% used to be uh, because people are counted as employed when they're not working very much at all, certainly nowhere near enough to support themselves. Uh, Underutilisation in the economy is the real drag on wage growth and there's a lot of people that want a lot more hours than they can get. Uh, and when we they are working, and we've seen this in the headlines over the last week, people are being paid illegally below the minimum wage. It's rife in in the hospitality industry. There are young people being paid $12 or $14 an hour. They don't feel they can say anything because they'll lose what work they have. So the insecurity out there is really bad. And that then flows through into the economy. Retail is in a slump um, because people don't have the money to spend. They've had their penalty rates cut. Um, there's a lot of wage theft going on at the lower end of the economy. Lower pay rates are people on low on low incomes anyway are suffering. And we, and we know that. too that people that have big mortgages, which yeah. are usually the ones spending in real mm. retail outlets, are less likely to do much less any likely. spending right now That's right. as so well. The, those interest rate cuts really aren't seeing much of a shift um, because people are overcommitted in the first place. So they just think, okay, great, I can get start to catch up on my mortgage a bit. They don't necessarily reduce their repayment rates when the interest rate goes down. We've all got too much stuff anyway. We've all got too much <laughs> stuff. You know, we're drowning in stuff. I'm drowning. 
I've got a kid. I'm drowning in crap. Um, but I, I, yeah, I just I think you know people feel that, and they felt it before the election, and they might have heard the message that everything was okay. But I don't think it's actually changed a lot of people's behaviour. Mm. So we're not seeing it flow through. Well, well, given those issues with unemployment and underemployment, mm. and um, you know stolen wages mm. and all that sort of stuff, and the fact that that as you say, we're on a little bit of, of kind of a shaky ground economically speaking. We haven't had a raise in New Start, which is no. a safety net for people who are unemployed since 1984, a raise in, in real terms. Yep. That is, of course, this was a uh, Labor had said they would review mm. the New Start payment. They took that to the election and lost the election. Where do we sit now with that? Uh, I think the growing chorus of people across a political divide to raise new start we're even seeing a couple of backbenchers come out in the in the liberal party and say they including barnaby joyce and saying it needs to go up um but the business community's been saying it for a long time you know chris richardson from deloitte access economics the business council of australia these are not bleeding heart lefties these are people saying this rate is so low that it actually prevents people getting into work it's a drag on the economy we know there are you know like 173,000 people aged over 55 on new start that's the largest age cohort and those people really can't get back into work they're waiting to access the age pension they'll spend that money if the, if, it, if the rates raised it's actually it's not just the right thing to do for them it lifts them out of poverty but it helps the economy because they'll go out and they'll spend that money um, and ACOS has done modelling that shows you know the impact of raising new start in some of the poorest regions in Australia would be really stimulatory for those local economies which I think is what Barnaby Joyce is talking about um, it's essential but we're not seeing any movement from the government. I mean, um, you've heard the, the Prime Minister, the Finance Minister say, look, no, we're not going to raise new start. The surplus is more important, which is ridiculous. Well, we've heard Josh Frydenberg yeah. defending the surplus and yeah. they really want it, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they do, because it's a promise and they see it as this, yeah. you know, it gives them the, the mantle of being a better economic managers. Yeah, but actually, It brings them on par mm, with the, the, the Costello budgets and so forth. But I wonder, do but, you think the answer, and I'm asking you to read um, the government's mind right now, <laughs> But do you think the answer would be different if they weren't chasing this holy grail of a surplus? No, I don't necessarily think it would. I think there's a there's an ideological view within um, the government that New Start is not... Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it goes to what the Prime Minister said during the campaign, you have a go, you get a go. I mean, that's code for we're not we're only going to help people that are helping themselves and they see people on New Start. They've still got that very um, perjurative view of people as being bludgers or being lazy. And we know that's not true. I mean, as I just said, the biggest number of people on New Start are people over 55. They haven't been, you know, bludging their way through life. <clears throat> they've been working, they've been thrown out of work and they can't get back in. So I think there is an ideological bent to it as well. And the Prime Minister's also said if he's going to increase a payment for anyone, it's going to be pensioners. So they have this view of the deserving and the underserved. It's a question poor. of priorities, isn't it? Well, it we've is. just had tax cuts passed yep. as well. Yep. I mean, the money <laughs> could go to raising New Start, but yeah, it's not. I mean, there's going to be $95 billion worth of those tax cuts in a few years that goes to people earning over 180000 now, they, they don't need that money and they're not going to spend it. They're going to either put it in their, you know, lightly taxed super accounts or they're going to go overseas and spend it in someone else's economy. Um, so it is a question of choices and priorities. I, I think they're, they're saying surplus is more important. That's ridiculous. What's the point of having a surplus if we've got hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people living in poverty? Um, it, it's, it is a question of choices and I just I think it's going to be very hard to get this government to make that choice. But I'm heartened that there are some signs on the backbench of people saying, 
saying in the government that it needs to change. I'm heartened that Labor's now on Friday said, you know, Albanese actually said, yes, it needs to go up. Uh, no, not, you know. Not, we're going to have a review and we're not having a yeah. review to see it go down, no, which was right. what we heard before the but election. pretty unequivocally on Friday said it needs to go up and it needs to go up now. And so, you know, Labor needs to lead on this issue. They need mm. to get out and lead on this issue. It feels That's a, what a little bit late to do. in some ways, but it's, it it's, it's good that it's that has better been Better late than never, yeah. <laughs> and we're speaking with Emma Dawson, Executive Director of Per Capita. And can we go to some of those policies that Labor took to the election? So we heard a lot and we spoke to you, you know, to try, mm. try and help us understand things like franking credit reform <laughs> and also negative gearing and the like. But then all of a sudden after the election, we know that the government wasn't going to do those things, uh, the, new, the, the now government, uh, but they did have a look at deeming rates. Mm. So this is another part of this sort of retirement yeah. uh, income issue that we didn't really, well, I didn't hear that word that much mm. leading up to the election, but that's what was chosen to be done after the election. How do you see things now? So I think that's consistent with their refusal to do anything on franking credits. They're giving more money to, I mean, the deeming rates issue is, is a a good point. They, it's something that needed to be done and you're talking really about part pensioners, so you're not talking about wealthy self-funded retirees, people that have got a little bit of money probably in a term deposit uh, rather than in the share market um, and that the, the interest rate cuts have meant that they were being assumed to make a lot more off that than they actually were. And it's so interesting anyway, I mean a lot of people like me go, in the day, the <laughs> days of digital banking etc how come we just can't just yeah. judge them on the income they're getting from these investments rather than guessing at what they might get? Well that's anyway. right, I mean, Maybe that's a there's an question. argument that there's a co you know there's a higher cost to the government to do that kind of detailed analysis of everyone's income, um, and there are there are privacy issues around that too. But look, they, they it speaks to the power of the of the um, lobbying lobbying power of older people. You know that the pensioner groups are really uh, it'll be interesting to see when the um, annual well the the you know election study comes out from the ANU in November. They do it after every federal election, just where the votes were. But early indications are that it really was older voters that kept the coalition in power. So they do respond to lobbying from that group, uh, but that's the same reason they won't touch franking credits. Uh, and actually, someone's going to have to. It's going to raise, go up to about eight billion dollars a year soon. And when Dick Smith comes out and says, "I got half a mil last year from the government," people start to go, "Okay, that's really not affordable." Yeah. But yeah. So, so where does the ALP go from here? Yeah. Look, I think they've they've said all their policies are under review. So um, we, as a think tank, are saying, "Don't." You know, we're trying to exert what little influence we have, um, a lot less than some people think we might, but uh, to say these are necessary reforms, actually. We can't keep paying out five, eight, it will grow to $10 billion a year to people uh, that don't pay any tax and at the same time say we can't afford a $3.5 billion a year rise to new start. So um, Labor's looking at it. I think the best solution for them is to introduce some sort of cap where they say, well, we're not going to take five grand off someone that's got, you know, a couple of hundred thousand in a in a, in a self-managed super fund, but we are going to take that five hundred grand off Dick Smith. Um, so it might not it might not raise as much money, but if they introduce it in a way that's capped, so that a lot of those people that genuinely do feel that losing that five or ten is going to have a big impact on their lifestyle aren't affected, um, then then that might be a more sustainable way forward. But we can't keep forking out billions of dollars to millionaires and at the same time saying we can't no. increase new start or raise the pension. But that said, it's not the millionaires that that kept um, the ALP out of government mm. it was people that said you know yeah. pensioners that were telling people saying well uh, the ALP is going after my franking and credits not getting franking and credits. I th <laughs> so I mean does that say that the 
you know, the education campaign that that should have, could have been mm. part of, of any proposed big changes yeah. failed. Yes, absolutely. I think that's the key point. Uh, exactly right. Is that it's not the policies that were the problem. It was the campaign. Um, and Labor spent a long time talking, and we all did, you know, talking about this is how we're going to raise the money. And to be fair, in previous years, they'd been held, you know, their feet to the fire on how you're going to pay for your spending commitments. So they arguably spent too much time talking about that and not enough times talking about their spending commitments themselves. You know, I was picking up my kid from school the night before the election and she's young and she's, you know, a lot of her um, peers have got younger younger siblings that are in childcare and none of the parents at my, my kids' school knew uh, about the childcare policy that Labor was promising. Mm. So there was arguably a failure there to say this is what we're going to do for you. That doesn't mean that the um, economic policies that uh, Chris Bowen and his team put together were wrong. There was a lot of good stuff in there that we hope they will keep um, and that they will spend the next three years talking about. I think um, negative gearing, which you mentioned, is an example of that. They took that to the 2016 election. They've talked about that for a long time. A lot of us have talked about that for a long time, and I think it's more broadly accepted in the community now uh, as something that needs to be done, whereas franking credits was, you know, very right mm. for a scare campaign. Well, well, this is something you touched on in a recent piece you wrote for The Guardian, mm. where people are, and this is not just the case in Australia, but I think in other sort of Western democracies around the world as well, where people are voting against their self-interest yep. in some respects. They're yep. voting for policies that will um, not bring them benefits as someone or sort of the lower economic end mm. of the spectrum. Mm. How do we combat that? It seems like it's, it's a strategic thing that, that societies around the world are really grappling with yeah. now. How do you combat populist rhetoric yeah. to deliver positive reforms? Yeah, we saw it in Brexit, we saw it in Trump, and I think we have seen it here too. Um, and it's across the spectrum. So wealthier voters in some, you know, blue lip blue-ribbon Liberal seats were voting against their own mm. interests by, by swinging to Labor when they were going to lose franking credits. Um, but they can afford to vote against their economic self-interest. When, uh, when you're struggling to think about where your job's coming from or you're not earning enough in your job and you're falling behind in bills and in rent, um, then, you, you know, things like climate change and refugees become a second-order issue because you're worried about your own security. And, yes, that's happening across the world. People in those situations are actually voting... For parties that don't have a lot of answers for them but they're so scared of change uh, and they hear you know well we're going to raise taxes that message has been hammered now for 30 or 40 years that taxes are bad and the left whether that be in the UK and Europe or the US or here has really been poor at having very poor at having an answer for that at, at changing that narrative to say actually no taxes are how we pay for a civilized society um, and the fact that these you know tax cuts have gone through the parliament that are really going to flatten the progressive tax system in this country it's going to lead to a much less equal society the big task for people like me um, who are engaged in political conversations around policy changes is to really push back at that neoliberal narrative that says everything should be privatised we should shrink the size of government we should all pay less tax because ultimately that means you move to a user pay society and if you can't afford it you can't have it and you end up you know at the extreme end with something like America where if you can't pay for your insulin you die um well I so think it's and it's interesting to hear but I mean you sound really um 
positive that the the progressive agenda is is right it's just that it's some you know un, unpalatable mm. um, but I wonder if people are quite nervous especially if we are in a situation where the economy is not as strong as it as it could be or should be especially for those that are vulnerable yeah. uh, that people are nervous for any change that seems big because yeah. any failure and particularly I think with trust in, in Bill, Bill Shorten and, mm. and the articulations that he made if he stuffs it, I'm going to be worse off. That's and it. I think that that sentiment was certainly there in, with, with some people. You, heard, you, yeah, you could think, read it in letters and yeah, all sorts of things. I think so. people don't trust government to help them anymore. So being asked to put their faith in government to change things is risky because they've been convinced, again, by 30 or 40 years of rhetoric, that there is no role for government to help them, that they have to help themselves. And the, the franking credits debate was an absolute microcosm of that because people are saying, look, don't touch my nest egg because I need to leave it to my kids because then my kids won't be okay. So they're actually doing their own economic redistribution within their families because they don't trust the state to do it anymore. And that's fundamentally because of 30 or 40 years of a rhetoric that tells them there is no role for the state. As Thatcher famously said, there is no such thing as society. There are individual men and women and there are families and people have bought that and so now they're like, I'm on my own. I can't trust this guy to do it. I need to look after myself and look after my own. And there is you know, a really strong streak of self-reliance in the Australian character. I think it goes back to how, you know, since the invasion, European invasion, we were built by, um, you know, refugees, immigrants, um, people that, uh, convicts, people that had nothing to sell but their own labour and nothing to rely on but themselves. And that has been twisted by the right of politics into a kind of dog-eat-dog thing where you, you're on your own. Actually, people are more generous than that in Australia, they, but they are very self-reliant. So you've got to talk about how we're going to help you help yourself and your neighbours. It's really yeah. interesting to hear um, how you're thinking right now. <laughs> we um, could go on, for, uh, on, we that, could, yeah. on that line <laughs> I'm for thinking a, long a lot time. about this. And we <laughs> can't. Um, Emma Dawson, she's Executive Director over at Per Capita, and it's um, good to hear. Back in January, momentum was seemingly building in Venezuela to oust the country's President, Nicolas Maduro, after a string of countries, including the US, Australia and Canada, officially recognised opposition lawmaker Juan Guaido as the country's leader. But six months on, as the issue has faded from the front pages here in Australia, we still haven't yet seen a change in leadership. All the while, the economic health and food crisis in the country has reportedly only worsened. Raul Sanchez Uribari is lecturer in crime, justice and legal studies at La Trobe University. And to help us understand the current situation over there, he joins us today in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you Good very to see much. you again. Uh, thank you, likewise. Yeah, so we did have you on the show back, I think it was in February, to bring us up to date on what was happening over in Venezuela. What has happened since then? Oh, a lot. A lot. Now that I think about February, it feels like 10 years ago in Venezuelan time, given everything that's happened. Um, several unfortunate, a string of unfortunate incidents, let's put it that way. Uh, different attempts to, to remove um, Maduro did not succeed, as we know. Um, that, on, that only helped, I think, to some degree to entrench the regime. Although, um, I think it's, better, it's, it's a, a better way to characterize the situation as it is right now. It's a stalemate between, on one hand, uh, sanction highly illegitimate uh, regime that it still counts with a support of about 20% of the of the population um, and on the other hand uh, uh, why though the opposition leader still counting with a with large pop you know, larger popular support but I have to say a growing number of people who are 
who sit on the fence between the two options or really are disappointed by both. I think it's a, it's a better way of, of putting it. On the other hand, the situation in the country itself is um, has worsened, uh, really, particularly after the energy crisis um, that happening, if I recall correctly, in late March, should know. But um, when pretty much the largest power plant in Venezuela, one of the largest in the world, uh, collapsed with close to 80% of Venezuela finding itself out of power overnight. Mm. Uh, ever since the country has been going into recovery mode, so to speak, with routine blackouts affecting most of the country, uh, even the capital, Caracas, sometimes, uh, with some cities being seriously hit by these recurring blackouts. Maracaibo, for example, um, population 3 million, has only 12 hours of uh, electricity a day. Wow, what a shock. Yeah. So that, of course, imagine having to live all, all of a sudden your life with half the electricity you usually use, petrol shortages as well. There are a number of other things happening that have really affected the quality of life of well, Venezuela. Remember when South Australia lost power for like 24 hours or something? And we're still, and, talking, about and we're still talking about it years later. It was a, a really big moment in yeah. Australia, but this, was, this is ongoing. It was at some point when the, when the uh, power outage happened, in some places it took over a week to get energy back. Mm. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling you guys, and I'm remembering how anxious it was for Venezuelans and at the same time for, for, you know, for relatives and friends overseas. Sometimes the only way they could actually hear news was by us messaging them because there was no way they could communicate there. It, it, it was a, a really, really full-on difficult experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you've recently returned from South America. You've been spending a bit of time in Chile recently. What's the, the sense of, of people in Chile about the situation facing Venezuela and Venezuelans um, currently? Yeah, no, it, it, that's a great question. I mean, it was an eye-opener experience. I'd never been to, to Chile before. Um, Chile uh, is... Um, has population of about 15, 16 million people has received close to 400,000 Venezuelans, according to some counts, most of them arriving only in the past three years. Um, as the, refugees? As refugees, as you know, initially, quote-unquote, economic migrants. Mm. But these are people who are really being pushed out of Venezuela, out of the uh, current dire circumstances. I mean, people who all of a sudden found, like, a large percentage of the population, seeing the salaries collapse from earning several hundred dollars a month to three or four or five dollars a month. So, of course, um, you know, characterizing them as, as, as economic migrants is a misnomer. I mean, you've been pushed out of your, of your country, so to speak, given the dire circumstances. So, um, it was, as I was telling you bef right before the interview, was um, really confronting, humbling, um, at times inspiring to hear so many Venezuelans um, in the street, randomly. And, and you could feel that, right? I mean, it was... If you add 300,000 people all of a sudden to a city and you see them walking around, you see them talking, most of them between the ages of, I would say, 20, early 30s, most of them you know, young, energetic, none of them, none of, of, of those who I spoke with, with any kind of uh, sense of not giving any time for, for thinking or reflecting too much about the, the, the harsh, the harsh, characteristics of his, their situation now, trying to look at it from more from a positive uh, point of view I'm here I'm working I'm living I'm helping my family things are going well things will improve at some point uh, 
this was actually a learning experience for me. There's no other way. Having a look at the attitudes. I mean, as Dylan said right at the beginning, this um, what's happening in Venezuela has disappeared from, you know, the front pages and the news bulletins around the world. But is it as serious as the last time we, we spoke to you when there was this, you know, question mark over the leadership of Venezuela? I mean, just even on the weekend, we heard that, uh, you know, the US is saying, oh, we're being tailed, our naval flights have been you know people in venezuela you know sending them up with its tents uh russia's backing venezuela's current government you know what what should we be thinking right now i think i think to uh, the you know the short answer to your question is is more important than ever because it's precisely now that that venezuelans are uh, in their day-to-day experiences are uh, are living through the the hardship that we described uh, months ago only increase by the political stalemate that I described, I'm, and by an economic situation that has only worsened. Um, the you know, combination of the, of you know, on one hand, the pressures that were put into the government to to for for a transition, particularly the economic sanctions, have partly affected, of course, the economy as well, an economy that was already collapsing, um, and that, of course, has also effects on the on the livelihoods of people. Um, as a result, um, what used I have to say, probably the the greatest single change has been precisely in the in the living conditions, and and it's so hard to to describe, uh, particularly for those of us who are who are not there. Um, you know, it's on one hand we can describe, for example, living through rolling blackouts, um, not every, having power every twelve hours. We describe it here, and we can imagine it, but really we we. We haven't really experienced anything like that. So when I speak to my family every once in a while or to my friends, they tell me, Raul, you, you haven't been through this. Mm-hmm. this. This is new for us. And so, of course, I think that's part of the problem right now, conveying that pain, conveying how hard it is to live through these conditions has become increasingly difficult as a result of the fading attention of the of the world. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear those perspectives because when we do tend to hear about Venezuela most recently, it's been framed in terms of geopolitics about, um, as Carly mentioned, the US accusing the Venezuela of, of um, tailing a, a Navy flight. There's Russia, China and Cuba backing Maduro and, and the US along with Australia and a host of other countries as well, uh, recognising Juan Guaido as the interim president. But it, it seems like from what you're saying these types of i guess geopolitical concerns and also ideological um concerns around kind of you know socialism versus capitalism and that kind of thing are not necessarily at the forefront of people's minds it's more the very um you know real challenges of of living day to day absolutely i mean that need that we that we talked about months ago about bringing the experience of venezuelans through this conflict to the forefront of the discussion is, is still there, it's more pressing now more than ever. Among other things for, um, precisely because the issue has now hit this this sort of geopolitical level um, that then transfers the decision-making power out of Venezuela's hands sometimes into the hands of, well, people and authorities and elites that are far removed from the from the experiences of Venezuelans. Now, I have to say, hopefully, um, one positive development in the midst of this all has been the opening of talks in Oslo, in Norway, sponsored by the by the Norwegian government, between the government and the opposition, with the with a view 
to to, uh, to hopefully reach an electoral solution to the crisis. How close we are to that solution, I think we're still a bit far away. But the fact that those talks are happening, the fact that they are sitting down there and, and talking, well, you know, what did it take for us to go all the way from the tropics to discuss these issues in Oslo? It's, you know, it's how the world works, right? But we're speaking with Dr. Rul Sanchez Uribari, lecturer in crime, justice and legal studies at La Trobe University, all about the current situation over in Venezuela at the moment. And you mentioned that there's a, a bit of a stalemate currently and, and people aren't necessarily, while they might be uh, you know, unhappy with Nicolas Maduro, they're not necessarily supporting Juan Guaido as well. What might be a potential solution, I guess? Um, I mean, could there be a solution not involving either of those two figures or, or an end point to this? I reckon a, an electoral solution at some point will probably involve, I don't know to what degree Nicolas Maduro will run again. Mm. That's one of the biggest questions. I mean, we don't know yet. Uh, I think, honestly, that if there was an uh, an election where the government would participate, they would probably run with another candidate because they have a roster of younger leaders who might be more appealing. Um, the, uh, on the other hand, Guaido himself has become, has definitely strengthened himself as the leader of the opposition. And there is a still a lot of debate within the opposition as well. Part of that, uh, part of that group that I told you about who are uh, reluctant to embrace one option or another, it's precisely people who are simply disappointed as a result of not, let's face it again, months of suffering and months of, of going through this process day by day. Um, it's really hard to keep faith in, in, in your leadership and in others where precisely that failure of leadership is what's actually led to the situation that we have that we have today. So I, I can understand uh, why they might feel disappointed. On the other hand, that appetite, that, that craving for an electoral solution is still there. And that's, I think, positive in the midst of all this situation. Yeah, and what what sort of support does Nicolas Maduro enjoy from the military? Because it seems to me um, somewhat significant that, you know, Leopoldo Lopez, the high-profile opposition figure who was detained for years, has been released. And Juan Guaido has, I'm, I imagine he's faced some challenges, but has been essentially a free man, to my yeah. understanding, um, in, in sort of recent times as well. So is there any sense that the military may kind of shift its, its allegiance at all? and that that could be a key to, to what happens next? Well, that leads me to a, to a couple of interesting developments that we haven't mentioned and that I think are important. No? One, is, one is, I think, negative. One is, I think, positive. The negative one is, of course, the apparently uncritical support of a large, of, of at least a visible large percentage of the, of the military uh, or the military as an establishment in favor of, of, of Maduro. Now, the military as, as, as a whole is, is loyal until it's disloyal, right? So we can't really know for sure um, other than, than some assumptions that we know about high levels of corruption and the ideological nature of some of the leaders, blah, blah, blah. We don't really know what else is going on. So that's one side. The, on the other hand, however, um, on the front of, of, of regime legitimacy, the government has actually suffered some major hits, particularly on the on the humanitarian side uh, forefront. Um, speaking of Chile, uh, ex-Chilean President uh, Michel Bachelet, who is now the UN Human Rights Commissioner, led uh, a mission to Venezuela, a fact-finding mission, issued a report, and the report was scathing. Uh, the report uh, singled out um, a, a sort of a large vast swath of, of human rights violations um, and this was, I think, even if Venezuelans already knew about all this, um, it was still shocking from the point of view of, of, of public opinion. And in the region, it was significant, particularly with respect to um, 
progressive and center-left parties that still held some kind of, 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 of feeling of support of, or allegiance to, to uh, Maduro or to Chavismo as a result of the, um, as pretty much for a variety of reasons, um, anti-empire, anti-US perspectives, or simply all solidarity. Um, this report were coming from a person who, who is so respected in that community led to, I think, to additional reflection and to increasing pressure on, on Maduro and the regime to achieve a, a transition or some other form of change. So more developments happening on the front, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And and we spoke a bit about the connection between Chile and Venezuela, and particularly, you know, many Venezuelans travelling to Chile um, to, you know, improve their livelihood, essentially. What sorts of connections are there from Venezuelans living in, in Melbourne, for example, and their friends and relatives at home? I mean, are people really concerned about the plight of their, their, their friends and relatives at, at this current stage? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is a situation that happened that on the one hand, we all experience at an individual level, uh, Venezuelans, in spite of being very, you know, culturally speaking, were very outgoing people. As, as you know, as Latinos are supposed to be stereotypically. What people don't know is that we're also very reserved on private matters, like any other culture, right? So that means that a lot of this pain is processed individually. It's processed without help. Uh, I think that um, the, the association has the Venezuelans, both as an as organized communities and 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 as a group, have. Uh, engaging in in a variety of initiatives precisely to on one hand raise awareness and on the other hand try to try to process this this pain as a community for example we have a an event coming up if I recall correctly on on July the the 27th or the or the 28th and I should remember because I'm gonna be MC there but it's actually going to be presenting Venezuelan cultural, um, a, di- a range of different Venezuelan cultural groups, folk music and so forth, um, with the idea of, of collecting funds to assist uh, Venezuelan uh, people and, and Venezuelans in, in need. So there is a sense of, of, I think, of consciousness in the Venezuelan community overall. Um, but And on the other hand, of course, ongoing conversations with, uh, with the Australian government and officers who've led, I think, at least in part, to a major change. The uh, Australian government has announced that it will uh, be in increasing the number of refugees, uh, coming Venezuelan refugees coming to Australia. That's definitely a, a good development uh, as well, and the community, of course, is very grateful for it. Yeah, interesting. It's um, it's a, it's a fascinating and and in many ways very sad state of affairs. But thank you so much for coming in and shedding some light on what's currently happening over in Venezuela. Thank you so much, guys, Thanks for your well. interest in Venezuela for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Absolute pleasure, Dr. Rule Sanchez Uribari is a lecturer in crime, justice, and legal studies over at La Trobe University. And it's pretty crazy that in Melbourne and across Australia, thousands of apartments and houses have been fitted with combustible cladding products. What to do about it and who pays was top of the agenda for a meeting last Thursday between state and federal building and planning ministers. Tina Perinotto has been following this saga for years. She's managing editor and publisher with The Fifth Estate, a new site focused on the built environment. And it's the first time we've had her on Triple R and it's great to have you, Tina. Welcome. Oh, thank you very much, Carla. And uh, concerns about building quality and in particular unsafe building products go back several years now. Um, did we get enough answers, do you think, from the Building Minister's Forum on Thursday to put the issue to bed, do you think, particularly around cladding and building quality? Oh, 
far from it, Carly. I think they've only just started and just um, haven't even touched the science. This is an issue that goes back years and years, as you say. Um, I can remember it from when I first started writing about um, issues in the building and property industry, which is too many years ago that now. But um, nothing's happened. No, nothing much has happened. We've deregulated uh, building certifiers, and from there it's pretty well gone downhill. Um, We've just cut over each other. You go, Dylan. And so, so how is it, Tina, that I guess we, we've been able to have such uh, deregulation being the order of the day in the building and construction industry for, for so long? Uh, look, it's hard, to, it's hard to know. There's so many people who look at this issue and, you know, just scratch their heads pull their hair out and they're so frustrated it is so obvious that there have been problems I have spoken to architects in Sydney who told me like a leading architect said he watched an apartment building going up about three years ago with no waterproofing in the bathrooms and he said sure enough people bought these you know one two million dollar apartments moved in and within a few weeks they were pulling out all the bathrooms and having to redo them it's just outrageous and this keeps going on you know with more and more outrageous some um, results in in full daylight in plain view and so we had um what's called the shergold weir report into the building sector delivered i think over a year ago now and there was a whole lot of recommendations in that that weren't adopted but i understand that at the meeting last week there was a commitment from building ministers to have a look at some of the recommendations in that report and and the kinds of recommendations were we need some national consistency we need firefighters involved with building design we need integrity when it comes to private building surveyors so some pretty basic stuff I think most people would think was already in place. Um, does that give you a bit of faith that some of those issues that um, you've been reporting on, Tina, might be addressed now if those recommendations are adopted? If they adopt the recommendations, then we do have some, some basis uh, to feel more confident. Um, it, is, uh, it would be a great start, and nobody knows why it hasn't happened before. And just to give you a bit of, a, a bit of background, um, Shergold Weir came out a year ago. Before that, Phil Harrington, I think it was 2014 when he was with um, a company called Pitt & Sherry, interviewed a 1,000 people in the building industry and found that systemically there was ignoring of, of, of the outcomes, the, the building quality. Um, he interviewed a thousand people, found incredible flaws and people with flagrant disregard for the basic rules. Nothing happened then. Um, in 2004, we just found that the Productivity Commission, last night we were just going through some, some you know, Productivity Commission reports. 2004, the Productivity Commission said, you can deregulate the building industry, but you do have to police it. So even they have, you know, warned these, about these things. None of it was um, put into place. And I don't know what it is. It's something to do with um, this philosophy that people have to, um, the industry has to self-regulate, that we need deregulation, cutting green tape, cutting red tape, and letting business uh, do what it wants. And um, everything will look after itself because the market will find a balance. But that obviously isn't happening. What sort of gained the, the headlines most recently has been combustible cladding and, and you can understand why that's the case given the obvious dangers that um, you know have been presented because of that and we've heard the Andrews Labor government is moving to replace combustible cladding and has asked the federal government to foot half of the $600 million bill for that but as you noted earlier there are other uh, you know concerns around 
basic things such as waterproofing in bathrooms that, you know, no doubt have been carried out in apartment buildings all across the nation. Is there a concern that going forward, these types of issues with apartment buildings and, and developments won't attract, uh, I, I guess, compensation? People who have bought those apartments won't be able to be compensated for those, I guess, more standard flaws in building design and construction? Well, that's been the evidence so far that people have had to dump up themselves. There's been some uh, government uh, through the Fair Trading Commission, etc., where there's been some compensation from government, like as the government as a last resort insurer, which is actually public money, which is actually using taxpayer money to fund the deficiencies that the industry itself should be. Um, you know, stumping up to, and it and it hasn't done it. So um, I don't know that there's going to be a, a enough funds to compensate these people. A, a lot of people suffer enormously. The stories go, you know, horrendous. If you've been a journalist doing anything on building construction, it's just uh, it's um, quite terrifying what some people personally have to deal with and the losses they face. Tina Perinotto is speaking with us. She's managing editor and publisher of The Fifth Estate. And, yeah, I think we have seen those reports, Tina. I mean, I think a, um, a choice or a, a consumer group came out and said you get more consumer protection for a toaster than you do when yeah. you purchase a property or purchase a house. And But I wonder, um, with regards to looking at you know the, the companies themselves, we know in the building sector there has been a problem with what's called phoenixing, where a developer will build something and then before you know it, the, the company's disappeared. And so where people look to for compensation, where things go wrong, they don't exist anymore. Uh, do you think out of the meeting last week that we might start having those kinds of issues, issues addressed as well? That would be a fantastic um, opportunity to do so. But they'd have to look at the corporation's law or something because I, I can't see in any other industry where you can build something and manufacture it and close the company down and the people who created that product are no longer responsible. I only see that happening in the building industry. Um, I'm sure that technically it can happen in other places, but it doesn't seem to. And this is people's most, biggest investment um, of their lives, mostly. Um, and it's it's really quite extraordinary that people can build these things or specify them or design them, you know, or uh, actually be the, the developer and not be responsible for the end product. But the whole issue is very complex. There's so many. It requires the entire building industry to get together and reshape itself to come up with some answers. And I know one thing that the Fifth Estate looks at is sustainability and, and green buildings and I suppose the movement towards improving measures in that area. And one other thing that came out of the meeting last week of building ministers was to you know commit to increasing the energy efficiencies of houses. And it kind of got lost in the story because we're so focused on safety. But I suppose this is a good move. Oh, it's a fantastic move, and that's overdue as well. Um, and we've had a fabulous, um, a very interesting, fabulous, I'm being cynical there, but a very interesting history about um, uh, trying to improve energy efficiency in houses uh, that has, you know, been extraordinary. You can actually get the building industry um, and committees to approve, uh, and then behind, you know, somewhere in the lobby rooms, uh, particular industry groups are going around and lobbying um, 
governments to to and ministers to to not implement the you know the efficiencies that are being recommended. For instance, the building products uh, legislation about two years ago, um, the industry came up with a fantastic um, uh, set of guidelines to improve building product standards and the way that you know which would eliminate the sort of problems we heard with cladding. Uh, everyone agreed on the table, and then somehow somewhere between the legislation, which everyone thought was looking very good, this is in New South Wales, by the way, um, looking very good, and by the time it got to the to Parliament in New South Wales, it had been decimated. So someone had got to the ministers there and said, you can't have these sorts of improvements. Now, with energy... It's been a similar story, but it's been more overt. They have fought black and blue to say it would add a lot of cost to the cost of a house, to the cost of a department, and that's been proven to not be the case. The industry is very, very clever in Australia at working out efficiencies. So on the one hand, it can, it can you know, it's doing very, you know, poor quality buildings in some cases, not all cases. In other ways, when the um, energy standard went from five to six star, I think it was, um, the industry worked out very quickly how to do it cheaply. So within about six months, it was at no extra cost. So they know how to do it and they can improve energy efficiency, which also obviously helps the, uh, the consumer in the long run. Well, hopefully they also know how to build quality buildings. And do you think that now from that meeting last week that we will see any improvements into the future? Is it clear how that process is going to work now, Tina? No, there's no clarity at all. It's very complex. I think they're starting from scratch. Um, they've got to bring in... When you think about it, the building industry is extremely complex. You've got developers, you've got builders, um, you've got specifiers. They can't even work out where... It's very difficult to work out where the responsibility lies for bringing in, for instance, um, flammable cladding. So the cladding itself is not illegal. It's the way you use it. You shouldn't be using it over a certain number of storeys. It's, you know, who's responsible for that? Was it the, you know, they're finding it very difficult to work out. But if people can sit down and work together, they will come up with some better answers and they will collaborate. But the biggest thing is compliance. So we have all the rules in the world in Australia, especially around building. We've got a good building code, but what is happening is people are not policing it. So the certifier is where a lot of the, the spotlight is going at the moment. So we think the certifier is um, the person who, you know, who used to used to be the, the building inspector provided by the council. Uh, they'd come along and say, yeah, you've done this right, or no, you haven't, you've got to fix that up. And now it's a private certifier. So a lot of focus is on that. But it does require all the different elements of the industry to get together and agree to some answers because the insurers are pulling out as well. Sounds like this is the start of a very long process to, to setting things on the right path, Tina. From a, a homeowner's perspective, though, what recourse is there for somebody who may be concerned about the materials or, or building standards of the place they live in? What can they do about it to have that checked? Well, they can actually get their, they could apply, um, get their own certifier to check it. That would be a good thing. So it's paid by the person who's going to, they're paid, <clears throat> the, the fees would be paid by the person who's going to, to, to buy the property. Um, I think, you, you know, anyone who's going to buy an apartment should get their own inspections done um, by a, a qualified building practitioner or certifier. I'm not quite sure that the certifiers <clears throat> are that um, brilliant. I looked into it recently. Um, you know, they, quite often they're not builders. I think I would get a builder or an engineer who understands the actual quality 
of the, uh, you know, the, the type of work that's being done. Um, there's no guarantee, really, um, unless you get somebody, you know, that's, that's highly qualified. Sounds like buyer beware. Um, thanks so much for speaking with us. Oh, you're welcome.